I love movies. I thought we'd start today with a bit of a movie review. It's an old one. Uh, it's from 1992, but it's one of my favourites, and it's a great courtroom drama called A Few Good Men. Some of you have probably seen it. Um, it's a courtroom drama, as I said, that tells the story of a US Navy lawyer who slowly rounds in on the seemingly infallible US Marine Corps Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, who's a fierce old war dog who runs his Marine unit with a, a brutal rigidity. And the climax of this film is famous for these kind of immortal Hollywood lines as the young lawyer pushes the wily Colonel to breaking point in the courtroom and he erupts and he says, you want the truth? You can handle the truth. Lines that will live forever in Hollywood history. There's something I find compelling <clears throat> about the process of a courtroom and the whole principle upon which society rests extraordinary power on the judgments that are passed in them. As a civilized society, we invest all of our authority to keep law and order and peace in the UK or the US or wherever in this elite band of people. We call them judges. The whole legal process, whether it's somebody who's just been caught nicking sweets in a supermarket all the way through to first degree murder, the whole process all culminates in a process overseen by a judge. And accordingly, judges have extraordinary powers. They can decide to remove presidents from office and they can decide to remove you or I from society and throw us into a concrete cell. Um, in many places around the world for various crimes, they can take people's lives. Here's an interesting quote that I read this week. It says, judges and courts exist to protect our liberties and our most fundamental and sacred rights. Without our courts, without judges, listen to this, there is no justice, there is no freedom. Listen to that again. Without judges, those people who are known for locking us away, there can be no freedom. That's a helpful perspective to hold on to today because we're going to be looking at an element of the ministry and life of Jesus which centers on this very subject. Over and over again in scripture, God is referred to as the great judge of humankind. He gives the law and then he judges over the law. And the whole point of God's law is to prevent you from becoming ensnared in the sorts of decisions that lead you to various sorts of bondage and captivity. That could be physical or emotional or mental or spiritual and so on. And so in that sense, God's law is a gift to us. And uh, adhering to it is good for us. And it's good for our freedom and from preventing ourselves from causing ourselves and others pain. Without the law, without a judge, there is no freedom. These past few weeks, we've been looking at ways in which Jesus could be described as true and better. We've looked at how Jesus is the true and better word, the true and better stairway, the true and better wine, the true and better temple, true and better healer, the true and better bridegroom, the true and better water. And today we're going to look at how Jesus is the true and better judge and how that's good news for us. Let's just read today's passage. Now, just before we do, I want to give you a little bit of context. This is really important. What's happened here is Jesus has just healed a lame man. This guy has been without movement for 38 years. And uh, today he's met Jesus and Jesus has healed him and sent him on his way miraculously. But he's healed him on the Sabbath. 
And that's the day that God set apart for uh, people to rest and to cease from all their work. And so it's written into God's law. And so this has really riled some of the locals and uh, particularly some of the religious leaders who see this as a, a kind of blasphemy. And so we pick up the story here in John 5, verse 16 to 30. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now there's a lot in this passage, but... At its heart, it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible about the love relationship and the dynamic between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. As the angry Jewish mob round on Jesus, he says, look, all I do, I do because my Father loves me and he's asked me to do it. I don't do anything at all that I don't dis clearly discern as being the will of my Father and in the authority that he has therefore given me to do it. Let's just take a moment to step back and consider this sonship language and what it meant in the ancient world. Before the Industrial Revolution, before DNA was discovered, sonship was deeply enmeshed in the identity of the father. For example, if your father was a baker, then you'd become a baker. He would show you everything you needed to do to become a baker. If your father was a farmer, then likewise you'd become a, father, a farmer and so on. But this was much more than just a matter of skills transfer. Because of the way that societies operated, 
If you were a young man, your entire existence, your identity would be tied up with that of your father's and of his family's. If you were a young woman, likewise with your mother's. And interestingly, we see an example of how this language is used elsewhere in scripture as well. Strikingly, at one point, Jesus calls his opponents sons of the devil. Now, clearly he isn't saying that they're some way biologically descended from Satan. But what he is saying is that from the very start, Satan was a liar and a murderer. That's his overarching identity. And he's saying, because you aren't telling the truth about who I am and because you're trying to kill me, you're more clearly identifying with the father of lies and murder. Therefore, you're sons of the devil. And so Jesus is making a huge statement here. Not only is he laying out the biological reality of his sonship, which just drives the mob crazy, you can't say that you're God's son, but he's also saying that in nature and character and practice, he identifies and reveals and displays the work and the character of his father, God. And then Jesus gives the basis for this outrageous claim. It's because the father loves the son that he shows me all that he is doing. That's stunning. We learn later at the end of John 14 that Jesus reverses and beautifies this whole sentiment when he says, because I love the father, I do exactly what he's commanded me. Friends, we, we just need to lift our eyes for a moment. In a world that is desperate to make it all about me and all about my rights and all about my life, we see this all over the news headlines at the moment. There is something higher at stake here. The very basis of our existence, the very nature of God's love for us and his desire to be with us and to show us love is rooted not first and foremost in our worthiness, but in the Father's love for the Son and the reciprocal eternal love of the Son for the Father. There is just no part of our lives that we don't owe completely to the love of God. Unquestionably, God deeply loves us. We'll get to that, but let's first cast our eyes in wonder at the relationship that is at the origin and the center of human existence. And it's the love relationship between the perfect father and his perfect son. And so the son only does what he sees the father doing. So we have to ask, what then is the father doing? And we see this in verse 21. It says, he gives life. He raises us from the dead. One of the things I've loved about lockdown is the extra time that it's given me to be with my daughters. Uh, my eldest daughter, Hannah, really loves jewelry and has started to make her own jewelry. And she started to express an interest in uh, me showing her how to use some of my workshop tools to do that. Now, I don't love making jewelry, but Hannah loves making jewelry and I love Hannah. So I'm happy to spend time with her, teaching her the woodworking and metal crafting skills that I've learned over the years and handing her all those skills over to her to be able to express it in her way, using her hand. And this is all done from the place of a father who loves his child. Now, Hannah could decide to use those skills to make beautiful jewelry and beautify the world, or in her free will, she could decide to use those skills to make knives to harm people. I have no control over that, even though I love her. I show her what I'm doing, and then I authorize her to do it herself. 
But that's not what it's like with the Father and the Son, because in them there is a oneness in their love and a perfection in their love that leads to a single-mindedness about what needs to and therefore will be done. This is what it says about Jesus in light of the nature of the Father in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, there's no way that Jesus can be of a different mind to the Father. He will always want what the Father wants. And what the Father wants, according to this passage, is to give life. And that's because he deeply loves us. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, for God so loved us, that he gave us his beloved son, so that whosoever shall believe in him won't die, but will have eternal life. Just as it says in this passage as well. The father loves to give life. The son loves to do the father's will. And so the son gives us life. And he does it at the cross. Remember Jesus' words in the garden the night before the crucifixion, as he sweat blood and he cried out to God, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. What would it look like for you if you made that your life motto? Father, I want my way, I confess to this, but not my will, your will be done. That's kind of how this passage teaches us to receive eternal life and life in its fullness. The Father gives life. Jesus, the Son, accordingly gives life. He does this by what he's achieved at the cross. And now you are invited into this eternal, unbreakable love relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to know love, acceptance, and life here and now and for all eternity. Now we've, we've got to move on because this message is all about Jesus being a true and better judge. In verse 22 it says, additionally, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgments to the son. So life and judgment are all tied together in this passage. Now it might be helpful just to take a moment to look at what judges in Bible times were meant to do. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to them. It's called the book of Judges. Um, and in this book, it kind of trails a portion of um, Israel's history in which God allows a series of leaders called judges to rule over the people and to protect them and to rescue them from foreign invaders and to do all of that by pointing to God's law and pointing to God and encouraging people to live by God's ways. That's the job of the judge. Protect, point to God, rescue the people. And over and over again, for hundreds of years, the people continue to rebel against God. Then the judges haul them back and they live under God's law for a while and it goes well for a short time and then it all starts over again. And this whole sorry story of repeated rebellion against God ends like this. This is the final words of that book, which so accurately highlight the human condition. I want to paraphrase slightly here. It says, in those days, Israel had no ruler. Everyone just did what they wanted. And soon after that, the nation was overrun by enemies and placed in captivity. Without a judge, there can be no freedom. 
Even the judges couldn't protect the people and give them life. It needed a greater, a true and better judge for that. Let's just look at the cross again. The the purpose of the cross of Christ was through the death of one man to pay the death penalty that was due to all men for their, for our utter rebellion against God. On the cross, Jesus took what was fundamentally wrong with humanity and he made it right. He made us right with God. It was the only way to perfectly satisfy the law of God. And in that sense, despite the gross injustice done to Jesus, his sacrifice for us was the greatest act of justice that the world has ever seen. And because of what we know from John 3, 16, that God so loved us that he sent Christ to do that, to die for us, in that sense, it's also the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. God's rescuing, life-giving nature and character was never better displayed than through Jesus as he died on the cross for our sake. If you want to know what God looks like in his truest nature, look to what Jesus was doing on the cross. Because out of sheer love for us, God's perfect justice and God's perfect mercy met at the cross in order to set us free and give us life. And on that day, a judgment was passed over us, acquitted on all charges, go free. Without a judge, there can be no freedom. The perfect love and justice of God meet at the cross, judging us forever free. And it all happens as a supreme outflowing of the perfect, eternal, reciprocal love of the Father and the Son within the Godhead. Jesus has rescued and protected us forever in a way that the earthly judges never could. Jesus is the true and better judge. It's all over what happens in the next few verses. Jesus goes on to say to this crowd in verse 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he will not be judged, but has crossed over from death into life. Now, this is really important for us, but especially if you're considering Jesus today, Judges make binary decisions. You're either innocent or you're guilty. You're either locked up or you're set free. That's the nature of judgment. And whether you're a Christian of many years or a not yet Christian, there is a danger alike in that we can kind of live like we're neither fully dead nor fully alive in Christ. We can kind of hedge our bets and try and navigate a middle ground, kind of keep our options open. Don't fully commit everything in your life to Jesus. Here's the problem with that, and I'm deliberately wanting to bring you to a point of decision on this matter today. There has never been a time, spiritually speaking, when you have been just about alive or just about dead. The Bible doesn't speak in those terms. It doesn't say that before you come to know Jesus, before you receive the free gift of his grace and knowing the benefit of his work on the cross, that you were kind of just limping along. Let me read you what it says in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And again, I want to paraphrase this. When you used to live according to the ways of the world, in ways that gratified your fleshly desires and your thoughts according to the prevailing culture, you were dead in your sins, not limping along. 
you were dead in your sins. And then just three verses later, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. If you don't know Jesus, or if you want to kind of try and live a life that really pleases you with a little sprinkling of Jesus on the side, you aren't just limping along. You aren't even on life support. You are dead in your sins. It's binary. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. If you're considering Jesus today, there could never be a better time for me to issue you the invitation that therefore follows. If you hear his word and you believe in him, you can cross from death into life. Right now, you can know the love and acceptance of God, the overflowing perfect love that the father already shares with his son and with all of those who follow and love his son. It's yours today for the taking. It's free. The true and better judge has delivered the verdict. Court is out. Those who hear his words come out of the tomb of our own judgments and insecurities and pain and bondage and addiction and past hurts and misdemeanors and rebellion against God and cross right now from life, from death into life. And just look at this multifaceted richness of this new life. The whole episode today began with a story of Jesus healing a lame man and giving him a new lease on life. To receive life from Jesus is also to receive what that lame man received on the Sabbath. Health from disease, freedom from physical and emotional bondage, and to be brought into relationship with the one who loves you, God. In what ways are you brokenhearted? In what circumstances or relationships are you disconnected or broken? In what ways do your broken emotions keep you in a sense of bondage or your distance from God? Victory in Christ is possible over all of these situations. Always. Come to him today. Surrender. Find life. The judge who grants life, the judge who brings freedom, the judge who protects his people, that judge is in session right now and he is patiently waiting to declare freedom from your captivity right now. That's what Jesus does. He saves. He saves us from situations. He saves us from eternal condemnation and he saves us from ourselves. That's why we call him saviour. And because he's the perfect judge, it means that every time he speaks, he is absolutely right. That's why you and I can trust every single word in the Bible. It's perfectly spoken out. It's the most perfect verdict ever given. It brings life and it brings healing. Without a judge, there is no freedom. But our judge, our true and better judge, speaks perfect freedom and wholeness over you if you say yes to him. The father loves the son and passes all authority to him to rescue us and to give us life. 
Jesus, the true and better judge, offers you this free gift of full life today. Whether you are a believer of many years caught up in captivity of some sort or someone who is serious about taking the leap into life with Jesus, you are most welcome today. In a moment, Nathaniel and Emma will help uh, to take the next steps in making that decision. But let me ask you to take a moment just to be still in your heart and consider God and pray this prayer with me. Jesus, thank you that you are the exact representation of the Father, that you radiate his glory into our lives and that you long to show us love and acceptance. Thank you that you point us back to the Father whose love for us is everlasting and unbreakable. Holy Spirit, please help us all to see and know and experience this personally this week, that we might be saved and that the Son may be glorified. Amen.